took where it's like everybody's taking vacation on the same day. <clears throat> but uh, for the Rock family, we've had some pretty positive benchmarks this summer. Uh, we've got the largest graduate class out of the teen ministry that we've ever had with 22 seniors this last year. Uh, we had a teen camp at a brand new location this year in Marietta Hot Springs, and it was amazing. I don't know if you saw it, but I had a pretty epic beard at the time, too, which I've never done before. <clears throat> this Monday, my wife and I got to celebrate our seventh anniversary of marriage. Thank you for all your prayers and contribution to that. Uh, we had a great 4th of July on Tuesday. Uh, this, this year as well, this summer, we started a, a team internship for some of our college students that wanted to take their summer to come and serve your kids in the teen ministry. So we got to try that this year. And then this next Sunday, my wife and I are leaving again for youth camp, which we have to run. Uh, and we're preaching our first ever series that I've ever heard on the Mount of Prophets. So we've had a full summer of awesome benchmarks, and we're actually pretty much on a roll. And uh, as Rick Steve said, we're going to continue this morning on our series on the Mount of Prophets. Get my clicker working. There we go. So, as I said, the, the, the title is Major Change from the Minor Prophets. And uh, these are some incredible, incredible books of the Bible. If you've never studied out any of these books, you might be asking yourself, why are they just called the Minor Prophets? Well, the only reason is because they're short. Not because they're any less significant uh, or anything like that. It's just God didn't need as much time to say what he needed to say. You know, the, the major guys like to talk a lot anyway. You know, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, they said more than enough. Just go ahead and keep this nice and brief for us. Uh, these books were written, I know I got to say this a little bit last week. These books were written at times when God's people were generally not in the best place. Either they were in the middle of a crisis, they were about to go through a crisis because they were being sinful, or because they weren't in a good place with God, and he was just trying to humble them out and draw them back in. And for us, these books serve as an incredible object lesson for our walk with God. Because I don't know if you've noticed, as a human being, we started, we're not in a good place with God. Then God humbles us, and he helps us to get right and connected with him. Then we get complacent or unfocused, and then we're stuck again, and then God has to get us out again. Humans are frustrating creatures of habit. I don't know if you've ever, like, just, just been reading through the Old Testament and just gotten irritated with God's people. There have been several times where I'm just like, why won't you learn? And then I look in the mirror and go, why won't you learn? And oftentimes as humans, we don't necessarily learn without pain. In the mind of 
He would preach to them. He sent them into exile. He sent them into captivity. He allowed the temple to be demolished. Or as we learned from Hosea, like we studied last week, sometimes he even takes somebody to be a demonstration. He says, look, I want you to do something painful and frustrating because I want people, when they look at you, to go, that's how God feels. And all of this is because he's trying to get us, as his people, to get back into a healthy, righteous, and thriving place of peace. And I don't know how you felt about, about our church recently, but I don't think that we've been in the place that God wants us to be. We need some help. We've been stuck. We've not been growing the way that we need to. We've had to deal with a lot of sin, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. That, that's a sign of righteousness. A right, of a righteous church. But I think God deserves better than what we've been giving to Him. Especially because of how much He believes in this group collectively and who we are individually. And I really want to urge us as we're going through this summer, as we're going through these books, to be humble. To take the time to listen to the lessons and to really let God move our hearts where he wants them to be. You know, I urged this last week to, to take a time to read the book of Hosea. How many of you guys uh, got to study out the book of Hosea this last week? All right. So we got some work to do, church. I think we need to repent. Let's take the time to read these books, to study them out, and let God speak to us. Amen? And today, we're going to be talking about the book of Joel. This is a unique and a unique book for a number of reasons. First off, this book is incredibly short. It's only three chapters long. <coughs> Man, I want to get some water. I'm packing my lunch there. So even though it's short, it's a very popular book. Another thing that we learn is that we don't really know a whole lot about Joel outside of this book. He gets referenced in other places, but we don't really know much about his family, who he was, what his life was like. But he preached some pretty powerful words. Uh, we also don't really know when it was written. Scholars go back and forth about what point in history he was actually uh, that this book was written. But it seems that he used a lot of uh, a lot of quotes from other minor prophets and major prophets. And the last thing is uh, is he doesn't. What's unique about this book is he doesn't target a specific sin or problem within God's people. He's not dealing with necessarily idolatry or, or sexual sin. He's not specifically challenging God's people about anything, anything specifically that they needed to see. And we'll get to that here in just a little bit. Uh, but these, in these short chapters, we have some incredible things to learn. The title of our lesson this morning is Bugs and Broken. I'm going to go ahead and say a word of prayer, and we're going to get into the meat of this. Amen? Father, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we have right now to sit at your feet, to specifically learn uh, from the Old Testament minor prophets. God, I really want to pray that our hearts and our minds are open and receptive to what you have to teach us. God, I pray that you'll really continue to work through my heart and my mind, but, but speak through me to preach only what you want to be said. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that there is a that there is a moving in God in your church right now. That our hearts will not stay stuck, but that we'll be humbled. We will make the changes that you desire for our community. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, what's, what's unique about this book is that we know that God's people aren't in a good place, but we don't necessarily know why. And what's interesting is Joel doesn't point out specifically what sins they've been committing. But what he does address is that God is giving them some serious discipline right now. Some of the commentaries I read suggested something that, that I thought was pretty good. It was almost like, like Joel said, look, you guys have been having all kinds of prophets preach to you about all kinds of different sins. I don't need to address it because they already did. Just pay attention. But now that we pay attention, let's make some changes. And today I'm not going to challenge any specific sins in the church. You know where you've been. And so do some of the people that are sitting next to you. But as you look at your personal walk with God, your home life, your school, your work life, maybe who you've been behind closed doors, there's stuff in there that you need to change. What I want us to collectively agree on is that before we leave church today, that we are going to repent as a church of what we need to do so that God can do miracles in this city. Amen? Are you with me, church? And I want to say this, too. As a leader, I know that this starts with us. We're not exempt from this. We're not trying to blame on the church. We as the leaders, God holds us especially accountable to this, and we all need to change together. One of the phrases that uses the theme in the book of Joel that shows up, it shows up five different times, but it's all, it's all over the Bible. And it's this phrase, the day of the Lord. It represents several different things throughout the Bible, but one of the main things that it represents, and the main thing that Joel uses it for, is that it represents that there's a time coming where God's going to throw some decisive intervention into history. He was going to change things up in a way that mankind was not going to be the same. And again, he says this five different times in the book of Joel. God was going to do something to humble or change people. It's used in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 30 to say that God was going to take out Egypt and all of its allies because of the sin that they'd been in. It's used in Isaiah chapter 2 when God, it says that God was going to send Assyria to attack the people because the people had been obstinate. It's used in Amos chapter 5, when God says, look, the day of the Lord is coming soon, because I'm going to send you into exile. You guys aren't going to be in your land anymore. But it's also used very powerfully in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came down, it was the day of the Lord. Mankind's history was going to be changed forever. And so it's used in a lot of different contexts, but the meaning of it is that God something powerful and sometimes devastating because he cares about his people being right with him. And no matter what it was, no matter what God used, it was going to alter history. In this case, the day of the Lord represents a fun little creature, a locust, 
Doesn't he just make you want to cuddle up with him? In the past, God used armies to enslave and exile his people. He's used snakes to bite his people to, to get them to humble out. He's used famine. Where did we learn last week in the book of Hosea? He, he used Hosea to be an example of heartache. And now he decides to send these little buggers. And this would be his object lesson. Now you may be thinking, that's nasty looking, it's got feet. Any creature that has red eyes is evil, as far as I'm concerned. Possums are evil. They're, they're soulless. They're, they're, they're just, yeah, anyways. Anyway. But you may be thinking, these things are nasty looking, but what's the big deal? It's a bug, right? Turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 1. Let's see what the big deal is. Starting in verse 2, it says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, and your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Drinkers of wine, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving the branches white. Now this is just a piece of it. God actually spends almost a chapter and a half describing what the locusts were going to do or what they were doing currently. God is basically saying, look, I'm going to send an army of these things, and they're going to tear up everything. All of it. You know, I grew up around these things in Colorado. Uh, that, you know, when they shed their skin, they actually leave this, like, little exoskeleton on a tree so you, you know, shoot them with BB guns and stuff. Um, but the more I read about them, the more disgusted and amazed by these things I was. I'm going to read you God's description of, of them in chapter 2, and then I want to show you a video, because I want you to get the full experience of what a locust swarm actually is and can do. Right? Turn over to chapter 2 real quick, verse 1. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes. Such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over mountaintops. That's terrifying. Like a crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish, and every face turns pale. You might, I don't know how you feel about bugs. You might have turned pale the moment that you saw that picture. But I want to show you guys a video. This is on BBC Earth. They're describing what locusts are like. 
Listen to the noise. There is no other species on the planet that responds as quickly and as dramatically to the good times as the desert locust. Eggs that have remained in the ground for 20 years begin to hatch. The young locusts are known as hoppers, for at this stage they're flightless. They find new feeding grounds by following the smell of sprouting grass. Normally, it takes four weeks for hoppers to become adults. But when the conditions are right, as now, their development switches to the fast track. As the vegetation in one place begins to run out, the winged adults release pheromones, scent messages, which tell others in the group that they must move on. the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure, places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. Consume every edible thing that lies in their path. This is one of planet Earth's greatest spectacles. It's rarely seen on the scale, and it won't last long. Once the fruit has gone, the steady roar of a billion beating locust wings will once again be replaced by nothing more than the sound of the desert wind. Does anybody else get the feeling that one's crawling on you right now? Ugh. These things are nasty and amazing. And I've caught the noise of it as they're flying by. When the Bible talks about they sound like an army coming through, that's kind of what that sounds like. But what, basically what he's telling us is that locusts come, and when they come, they eat everything. It says they eat they, any living, edible thing, they will consume it and move on. It says, and they have to keep moving forward. 
So in the Bible talks about in front of him is, the, is Eden, behind him is a desert wasteland. That's how powerful an army of locusts are. Even now, I was reading articles about this, even now in the 21st century, if a locust swarm comes in and they're in Africa, they're in Russia, they're in different places, there's not really anything you can do. I was reading reports where they, they pull tires out and burn tires in the middle of the roads to try to scare the locusts away because they're so dense and so powerful. All the crops, the wine, the plants your livestock eat, everything is affected. God lets these bugs come in and take everything away that his people could enjoy and trust in was at hand. They completely, this completely affected every single avenue of their lives and their current history. And you may be thinking to yourself, why would God let something like this go on? Why would he choose, I'm going to send a, an army of locusts to come in and change my people's lives forever in their current history? Because he wants to cause repentance. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, <clears throat> you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to them. Alas for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath their claws. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has been dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call. For the fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. The flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures and the wilderness. God is basically saying here, I have been trying and trying, but my people just aren't listening to me. So I'm going to take everything away in such a dramatic fashion so that when everything is gone, you'll look to me and remember who I am. I don't know about you, but I'm stubborn. You can preach at me till you're blue in the face. And sometimes I just don't want to listen. My parents have a story of when I was two years old. My dad tells me, don't, Jake, you're not allowed to go on the stair. You're not allowed to go upstairs. Don't, don't go near the staircase. And he was in an appointment and watched me walk up, stand on the staircase. They had to take me off the side, discipline me. No, Jake, I love you. Don't go on the staircase. This went on for like two hours long. We do all kinds of things. This started at two. And let me tell you, I'd like to say it's gotten better now that I'm an adult. But I can still struggle with being just as stubborn as that. You can warn me, you can warn me, and I'm still not going to listen. And there's a truth here. God is incredibly loving. 
unbelievably loving. And if there's anything you could take away from last week in the book of Hosea, it's that God is capable of forgiveness and grace that we cannot even begin to fathom. He can forgive the deepest, darkest things. But there's also another reality to His love that we don't tend to like. Love can mean that we need to get the one. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as sons. The Hebrew writer here is trying to help us to understand that because God loves us, He's not just going to let us stay stuck or be in sin and just get away with it. Just like a parent that loves your child, if you love your child, you better discipline them. It's not loving. Matter of fact, the Bible says you hate your child if you withhold the rod of correction. But God is going to intervene in our lives. If we're stuck, if we're in sin, He wants us to be different. But the reality is, this could mean Maybe he intervenes with an illness, an injury, financial hardship, problems at school or work, family problems in your own home, or maybe even the death of a loved one. He will use total disasters that alter our personal history if necessary to convince you of his righteousness. see God's discipline to be incredibly painful and difficult. In some cases, it wasn't necessarily that I had done something deliberately wrong. It's just hard things were happening in life. And just like the Hebrew writer says here, God's trying to discipline you because He loves you. In my junior year of high school, I got really inundated in my, wrestling, in, uh, in my sport in wrestling. And I, that became my God. I became all about being successful in my sport. I kind of put school on the back burner, and I definitely put my relationship with God on the back burner. It was an idol to me. And then all at once, a wrestling tournament and a match I was winning already, a guy did an illegal move, popped my back, and that was the end of my career. And I believe God used that to show me what happens if I place something as an idol in my life. I'm still suffering with a, with a bad back because of it. My physical therapist when I was in high school said my back was going to age twice as fast as I did. When I first moved back out to California, my mom was really sick. You know, I've shared about this at different points in time. My mom got incredibly sick with some mysterious disease. We still don't know what it is or what was happening to her, but it was killing her. She had to go through an eight-hour surgery to remove half of her left lung just, for, just so she could survive. I was forced to face the reality that I may not have my mom around for very long. And my mom is the glue that holds our family together. At that time, my brother also began his his drug addiction. And my family was going through unbelievably painful things at that time of my life. And part of what I learned from that time is that I can't put my hope in my family being perfect. When I was in college, I wrestled. In high school and college, I wrestled the sexual addiction. 
I was inundated in pornography, and, it, and it, there was no there was no light that it was going to change. But I had dreams, and at the time uh, when I moved back out here, I had dreams. I was mentoring the campus ministry. I had dreams of going into the full time ministry. I was dating my current wife, and my only wife. going for me. And I had to have these conversations that basically were like, look, if you continue down this path, you're going to ruin everything. You're going to destroy your dreams for your future. You're going to ruin your relationship. And if it doesn't change, you can't stay a Christian. And God used that time in my life where I wasn't saved to show me, if I don't change, I'm going to lose everything I hold dear. in the middle of it, I couldn't see it. It felt unfair and unloving. Later in Hebrews 12, the Hebrew writer continues by saying that God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hebrew writer here is trying to help us to understand what God was trying to communicate to his people and say, I will take everything away from you if you don't change. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. You may question my goodness. You may question my love. But all of this is because I'm trying to help you to see what you need to see. To see something bigger. To see that I've got plans for you. To see that I believe in you. That I want you to be right with me. And I want to say something to you. If you're going through some difficult things, it's probably a good time to even ask yourself, what is it that God is trying to teach me? In chapter 2, all of this God was, uh, of Joel, God was leading his people to some of the most powerful and important words of repentance in the entire Bible. Verse 12. Read this together. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. Those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. The first thing that God says in this passage, when He's talking about repentance, is throw up your hands like this, incredibly powerful words. Even. words are unbelievably significant. God is saying in the midst of utter ruin, even if it feels like all hope is lost, 
even if you feel like you are beyond repair, if you've crossed lines that you don't think you can ever come back from, I am gracious and compassionate and I want you to return to me. I want you to take a second and just say that. Church, even though we have not collectively been in a great spot, we are not beyond God's repair. Amen? But God is also saying something here, too. He says, you've got to come back to me with all your heart. And Joel uses the phrase here, rend your heart and not your garments. And what this is referring to is the practice of tearing your clothes. That, that if you were in a time of mourning or repentance, you're supposed to tear your robes to show that you're in a time of repentance. And basically what God is trying to say is, look, you can tear your clothes all you want. You can mourn and wail all you want. But it doesn't mean that you're really giving me your heart. He's not saying don't do these outward things. He does say, man, I want you to wail. I want you to mourn. I want you to fast. But he's saying don't just look for a quick fix or an external sign and think that you gave him everything. Psalm 51, David connects this. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. David's addressing the part that even in the Old Testament, you could just, if you were in sin, you could just come bring a sacrifice and think that everything was good. But God wanted them to do that. But he's saying, Look, that's not what God's really looking for. He's not looking for you to cry and feel emotional about your sin. He does if your heart is going to change and be given over to Him. We want quick fixes because repentance is hard. And it takes real honesty and real tenderness. My daughter's two years old and she already knows this. She's a chip off the old block. Last night we were, in, uh, uh, we were out to dinner with my parents. And, uh, she was banging her fork on her plate really loud and obnoxiously. And I was, was already like, I can't take this anymore. I was like, I was like Peyton, stop it. And she knows you obey the first time quickly to that start. So I said, Peyton, stop it. She keeps banging. And then I gave her the dagger. She stopped immediately. She goes, I stopped. I'm sorry. But the dagger was on. Discipline needs to be had. What I love about that is that she knows, man, okay, you're supposed to say sorry. Let me just let me just say sorry, and hopefully the spankings won't come. And I'm no different than this, and so are you. I want to just share what's the minimum, what's the minimum that I can be open about with somebody that I, that won't really challenge me so that I can feel better about my conscience. How can I can I share this in a way that I don't really have to deal with consequences and I don't really have to face the people that I've hurt? Right, church? I've been a Christian now for almost 16 years and I still grapple with this all the time. But God is saying, if my people want to see miracles, it's time to fast and pray. 
afraid is it completely vulnerable or it could reveal the changeless church. And I don't know if you caught it, but he even goes dramatic in verse 16. He says, I want everybody in my assembly to fast and repent. It says, from the elders, from the older people that feel like they can't, to a bride and groom that are getting ready to get married, put the wedding on pause, fast and pray, to the babies that are breastfeeding, they fast and pray too. Obviously, it's not literal. But the point is, it doesn't matter what your life circumstance is, it doesn't matter how old you are, we've got to make some changes, church. And we've got to change together. What's incredible about this is God's promise and how He will respond to your repentance. And I want to close with these, with these verses. Oh, sorry, let's look at verse 25. I didn't put it in there. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, it says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. God literally is telling his people, I am willing to take everything. Everything. Anything that has been damaged by what I have done, I can repair it and I can bless it tenfold. I can make rubble and build you a house. I can make chewed up crops and give you plenty to eat. I can work wonders for you. What this tells me is that God will always bless through repentance. Not necessarily in the way that we want or the the way that you think, but He will always take care of people and who take care of His people who want to give them his full, their full heart. His ultimate goal is said very clearly in verse 27. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. What God wants us to know most of all is that he wants to be with us. Later on in chapter 2, there's a, there's a section of Scripture that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 to talk about the Holy Spirit. Saying the day of the Lord is coming, where God is not just going to dwell among us, but in us. And I, you know what I love as a disciple is hearing stories of how God changes lives that are in completely broken circumstances. You know, Hannah and, and Adrian Escamilla uh, are some of our dear friends from this church. I know they've shared their stories in all kinds of different seasons, but, but their story, their story is, is a story of devastation. They both had, had separate marriages from each other. They had, they had trouble in their marriages. They had, children, they had children from their other marriages. When they tried, Adrian had become a disciple and walked away from God. And then when they started to get together, he started to come back to church again, and they were making more of a mess of their relationship, that everything was headed towards devastation in their choices. Their family history was a mess. But when they surrendered, when they gave their heart over to true repentance, 
God took them, allowed them to get married to Christians, to blend their families together, and even have their own child. It's time to repent, church. Let this be a day, a day of the Lord, where God alters our history the way He did Matt's history. Not where He had to send a swarm of locusts to devastate us because of some Christians. I'm not exempt from this, and neither are you. Collectively, I want us to decide that we're going to make some changes. But individually, that means we have to deal with whatever's going on in our lives. say that I want us to fast together as a church. I'm going to throw out a date. Why don't y'all just do it? On Wednesday, I want to ask you, church, that we fast together. Whatever you're capable of doing, I want to ask you to fast with us. Not for growth or miracles or for the Middle East and what God is going to do, but for repentance. For God to change the hearts of us as His people. Let's give our whole heart Church, I love you.